Welcome to the Third Church Podcast. I'm Corey Widmer, the lead pastor of Third, and this is part of a little quarantine mini-series that we're calling LTGL, which stands for Little Things with Great Love. We are looking at ways that people in our community are seeking to be faithful to Jesus and his mission during this pandemic. We're hearing a whole lot about uh, politicians and big-name national leaders in the news but we believe that the greatest heroes in this pandemic will most likely be people um, in our own local community, neighbors and local leaders who are acting in small, courageous, everyday ways to serve uh, and to love. So there's so many ways that God's people are seeking to be faithful to Jesus in this pandemic. And our goal in this podcast is to highlight a few of those stories. That's why we're calling it Little Things with Great Love. So I'm really honored to have as our guest today, Dr. Danny Abula. Now, Danny is probably someone you have heard of um, just simply because uh, he's in the news so much these days. Danny is the director of Richmond City and Henrico County Health Departments. Um, you might not know that Danny is um, a committed follower of Christ and um, that he does his work in many ways out of his sense of call to Jesus. Um, and I also just have to... Um, disclose that Danny is a dear friend of mine. We've been um, really close friends for a long time, for over two decades now, and we knew each other well at University of Virginia. Um, but um, I'm just super excited to have Danny on the show. Welcome, Danny. Glad to have you here. Thanks, Corey. So glad to be here with you. Maybe you could just first tell us about yourself and why you sensed a call to public health. I mean, you're a doctor, but why public health? Sure. Well, it was definitely not for this. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I think that uh, I, in medical school, um, I recognized that, you know, my, my rush to get to medical school and to fulfill my uh, somewhat parentally driven and somewhat culturally driven uh, pathway to become a, an Indian physician uh, was kind of diverted a bit in med school because I realized as I was, I was doing the day in day out of seeing patients um, that I didn't actually want to do that for the rest of my life. And, uh, and as I started to experience, you know, clinical care, particularly I was here at, at VCU for medical school, uh, particularly for uh, populations that had had, you know, experienced generational poverty, perhaps they'd come to this country newly, um, seeing both the disparities between different types of communities and, and health outcomes, but then also really starting to get attuned to uh, the bigger picture in their lives. I remember during my pediatrics residency, uh, you know, trying to like counsel kids and their families around obesity and talking about the need to like eat well and exercise more. Um, and these were families who were just trying to survive, right? Like they were just trying to get food on the table and get through the day. Um, and the degree of, uh, you know, cultural pressure, the, the economic pressure uh, was, was such that like, the advice that I was giving was completely irrelevant and not achievable for them. And so you say that because you, there were some deeper underlying systemic issues that your pure clinical guidance wasn't addressing. Is that what you Yeah, mean? absolutely. I mean, I, I could, I could 
talk all day about, you know, how to put a more nutritious meal together. But if they lived in a community that didn't have a grocery store or it took two bus exchanges, uh, carrying your kid in a car carrier uh, to get there and get back and, and you didn't, you know, like you weren't going to cook this big meal for your family. Like I think there, there are just challenges for families living in poverty that I never really had a window into. Um, mm -hmm. And medical school and residency was a, was a big part of that for me. So, um, but in, in medical school, when I, when I realized that I was, I was more interested in these macro systemic issues and the, the impact of um, culture and of, uh, you know, the, the societal constraints on, on people's health and well-being, um, I had a little bit of a crisis. And, and at the end of medical school, I was like, oh, man, what, what am I going to do with this degree if I don't want to see patients? So my fourth year of med school, I ended up um, just pursuing a lot of different rotations. We spent a month in Africa looking at healthcare in a different setting. Um, and and uh, I did some community health rotations and finally ended up doing a, a rotation at the local health department. And it was the first time where I'd kind of seen the intersection of um, how policy and culture and behavior uh, all come together to drive health outcomes in different communities. Uh, and I, I really felt like I had found what, what God made me to do. And so I decided at that point that I wanted to run a local health department. Um, and at every step of the way, the Lord has just opened incredible doors and, uh, and helps facilitate con uh, connections and relationships and, uh, and really like carved this path that has been uh, just an incredible journey. Mm. That's really amazing. It's really remarkable to hear about how that God shaped your call. And now you find yourself in a situation that maybe no director of public health could have ever imagined themselves in, or maybe they did imagine themselves in, um, in some nightmarish <laughs> uh, scenario, but here you are. Um, so yeah, just can you give us a window into what your life has been like the last six weeks? What have been the most challenging aspects of your work since the outbreak of COVID-19. Yeah, you talk about that nightmare scenario. I mean, I think um, in these sort of wild uh, predictions, exercises where we think about the worst case scenarios and, you know, the CDC at one point had uh, the zombie apocalypse being one of those scenarios, but, but really like thinking through something like a zombie apocalypse, what would it take? How would it spread? How would the entire, uh, like all of the societal systems need to come together? That is kind of what we're living through right now, right? Wow. I mean, it's, it's um, I, we have just never uh, experienced anything that has impacted so many different sectors of, of public life. And, uh, you know, I think- And probably no living public health director has ever faced anything comparable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's been over a century since we've had something that has just that this had this wide-reaching impact on right. communities. Um, so, what do my days look like? I mean, I think uh, it's every day is different, and it's part of the the fun, but part of the challenge of what's happening right now is that we're literally like every day or every other day learning something new about the way that this virus operates, how it's spread, how it's controlled, what works, what doesn't, um, how it impacts different settings. Um, so it, it is just a, a constant, uh, you know, a, a constantly shifting landscape that we're that we're trying to figure out, and and that is just on the medical side, right? There's this whole other impact on, um, you know, the social, psychological, behavioral, mental health uh, lens that uh, that we're we at the health department haven't really had the bandwidth to even think about. Thankfully, I have colleagues in other sectors that are that are working on that. 
Um, but some of those things are going to be uh, a, a part of our long-term uh, healing from this. But yeah, I, I mean, back to my days, I mean, it's, some, it's 16, 18, sometimes 20 hour days. It's constant phone calls with different leaders in the city and the county. Um, sometimes it's, it, it's just hearing from, from people. There's, you know, I try to spend a little part of my day actually talking to um, the families of residents of nursing homes or a patient that just really has a, a question that they can't sort out. Um, I have a lot of folks who, who will also do that, but it, it, I found that it's helped me uh, be connected and grounded to how this is affecting real people in real life. And so I've tried to carve out mm -hmm. a little bit of time for that. Um, it's been a, a, a huge part of just mobilizing our team. You know, we have about 250 folks between the Richmond and Henrico Health Departments, um, and none of us are doing the, this, the things that we were doing six months ago, right? This just in, in the, the course of the last six weeks, everybody has had to figure out how to do a different job. And for some of us, that job changes, you know, every day or every week. So it's just right. been a lot, a lot of constant change and, and adapting to that. Mm. I mean, one of the things that we've most seen you do is just be a communicator. Um, you've been called uh, in a really unusual time to communicate the realities of what's going on. And I think that all of us would say that you've done that with tremendous grace and honesty and transparency, um, but also um, uh, real, um, in a way that fosters a sense of trust with the people that you're connecting with. And um, that seems to be a big part of your job that maybe that we, is most public in mm. the communication aspect of it. Um, how does that feel to be bearing, <laughs> the, to be bearing the weight of, of that degree of the public communicator yeah, of the state. I appreciate you saying that. I um, I think I recognized pretty early on that um, this was going to be a serious situation for our community, and I just felt like it was worth committing the time to um, trying to inform the community of what's happening, of how uh, our our government, but our but our healthcare system at large, like how we were all adapting and responding to this, um, and to try to just be a, a touch point and um, someone who could, you know, candidly communicate what's going on, but also try to um, remain hopeful. Uh, and I think mm. that is part of, of how God has made me as someone who always uh, who always sees the hopeful side of things. And, and so uh, it has been a, a huge time commitment, right? Like the media, uh, I, I, at least 10, 15 different media outlets a day or are reaching out to me. Um, I've gotten better about letting our PR folks help manage my time and, and availability, but um, it has been a big part of my life for the last six weeks. Mm -hmm. um, one that is sometimes stressful because like the media isn't always your friend. Um, but I, I, <laughs> I do think, um, I know, I, I do think that both my availability and, and willingness to, to be, to have that conversation as consistently as, as we have um, has engendered some mutual respect. And, yeah. and, and in many ways, the, the media has, has been incredibly helpful in, um, in helping our community like mm. adapt to what's happening. You know, I talked to one of our members recently named Judy, who's a grocery store clerk, and she was talking about how she feels part of her calling is to be a non-anxious presence in, in an environment of anxiety, 
within the grocery store with all of her clients. And she's doing that on a personal level. And in many ways you're doing that on a public, mm. on a public level. Um, well, talk to us about some positive things about what you're encouraged by. Where do you see God, God at work right now? Um, how, do, how do you sense God's presence every day in your work? And where do you see God doing um, quiet, redemptive things in the midst of this? Yeah, I, um, I have been overwhelmed by just the sheer number of texts and phone calls and like handwritten letters. People are writing letters uh, to me, oh. just sharing their um, affirmation and encouragement. And, and it is, it's been extraordinary to see um, just our third family, our East End family, you know, the network of believers in Richmond who have um, been praying and, and reaching out like that frankly has sustained us right like this has been mm. a ridiculously stressful time for um for me some but like for our family right like uh, schools are out my wife is a teacher but she's home full-time with our five kids and and uh i just i know that that uh our sustaining god has worked through the prayers of his people and that has been uh, an, an extraordinary encouragement to us um i also think this crisis has uh, has just kind of revealed the best side of humanity in lots of ways. And so mm. in a, you know, in a, in a common grace way, I've just seen so many people uh, immediately oriented to how can I help? How can I love my neighbor? How do I care for people who aren't in the situation that I am? Um, and so I, it, yeah, it has been incredibly inspiring and, and hope giving to see uh, you know, the, the image of God coming out in people who want to be generous and who want to help restore the, this brokenness that, that this disease is, um, is bringing to our community. It's mm, really powerful. I mean, speaking of that work of, of, of healing, um, you know, public health you mentioned in the, in the beginning is more about public systems that affect our overall health rather than maybe direct clinical care. What do you think this crisis has exposed about the systemic brokenness of Richmond? Hmm. And how do you think the church, God's people, might be a part of its healing, both now and, and in the months or years to come after the carnage is revealed from all of this? Yeah. Um, well, one of the primary lenses that we in public health look at disease and its impact um, is through the lens of racial disparities. And that is clearly happening here with COVID-19. Um, we've heard in the national media about just the stark differences in the, the death toll and the number of cases of individuals who are African-American versus other races. Um, you know, our numbers are smaller here in Richmond, but, you know, as of today, we've had uh, 13 individuals die of COVID-19 and 12 of them are Black, um, elderly African-Americans who, who all have had underlying conditions. And, and we know that that trend will continue because of so many of the uh, historic and systemic factors that, that have led to uh, income disparity, that have led to, uh, you know, joblessness or challenging housing situations or environmental exposures, you name it. African-Americans across the board have, um, have higher rates of underlying conditions. They have higher, rate, higher rates of hypertension, higher rates of diabetes, um, and I could go on and on about that. But the, the, fact, the fact remains that that context, right, like our uh, like systemic uh, 
the, the systemic injustice of what African Americans in this country have endured for 400 years has led to a scenario where they have much higher rates of the things that uh, will lead to really serious consequences with COVID-19. So in some mm-hmm. ways, COVID-19 is just exposing that, uh, that underlying disparity even more. Um, right. And, and we, you know, there's, there's not much we can do about that except to be focused with our outreach and education and communication. Um, you know, we've done, we've started actually just yesterday, test, uh, two days ago, testing in low-income uninsured communities around Richmond and Henrico. Um, and it's been really interesting, like even the response to that, uh, our, we, we actually hire residents of public housing as community health workers. And, and so one of them was sharing uh, social media that of, of residents of her community who were saying, hey, the health department's coming to test you, don't do it. You know, we, we're not guinea pigs, don't, don't let them, uh, you know, test things on us, uh, just stay home and, and drink ginger and drink lemon. And, and so it, it, and, and that is really indicative of um, the African-American community's historical relationship with healthcare, right? Right. And, I mean, some of that is, a, is probably institutional memory of, of how historical realities of the past. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, passed the, on the, generations. Yeah. The best known would be the the Tuskegee experiment right. over the, over the through the early 1900s, mm-hmm. but you know, for for years and years there there are just tons of examples of how healthcare and government have have experimented and dehumanized African Americans and and we're seeing that continue to rear its head today. And so mm. it just makes the challenge of even trying to test and identify uh, COVID-19 in those communities that much more difficult. Um, and so these are these are some of the things that we're facing. Um, and I think these are some of the acute things, the acute places of brokenness that are being exposed by COVID-19. Um, I actually think it's the the months and you know year plus to come where it will be even more stark because, mm. you know, for our family, yeah, it's uh, not ideal that that MK and the kids are are at home every day, but. She's a teacher. We've got some computers. We've got the internet. She's able to put them on a schedule and, and we get through the day just fine, right? I have the luxury of being able to work from home or from behind a computer. Um, but so many of my neighbors um, have to show up for work if they're going to keep their families fed. They have to go work their cashier job at Walmart or uh, the custodian job at whatever essential business they're at. Um, And to get there, they've got to get on a bus. And all of those interactions are things that are going to put them at higher risk for exposure. And then there's a whole other segment of the population that were these hourly wage workers in non-essential businesses, you know, your barbers, your hair salons, um, who have just lost their jobs at this point. Um, And I think the compounding impact of uh, joblessness, of being stuck in the home with uh, a partner or or with children um, and not having these outlets um, is already starting to have impacts on rates of, of domestic violence. You know, our, um, here in the city, our rates of domestic violence calls were up by 8% this month. And mm. so, you know, I think this is just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the long-term impact of, uh, you know, the economic and social consequences for folks who don't have the capacity to, uh, to, to rebound quickly. Mm. Um, so, you know, you asked the question of what, what is this, what does that look like and what does it mean for, for the church's engagement moving forward? Um, I think that this is, this is not, you know, we, we may move 
back to some semblance of, of normalcy, probably not that normal and probably not for a while. But as that happens, it's going to be way easier for those of us uh, with resources to, to find that. Um, it is going to be extremely challenging for folks who have lived in generational poverty or even who have found themselves newly in poverty uh, to, mm. to adjust to that. And so I think for the church, um, this is an, a really important opportunity to think about um, to A, to name it, to see it, to understand that those disparities exist and are actually going to be made worse by this just complete like economic disaster that COVID-19 has brought. Um, but then to think about how do we marshal uh, the financial resources, the relational resources, uh, the political resources, what kind of policy advocacy do we engage in to really support the plight of our brothers and sisters who don't have what's, what, what some of us have? Um, and, and how do we do that in a really honest and focused way uh, that, that thinks about um, those communities that have been historically marginalized? Hmm. I'm so grateful you shared that. I mean, I think so many of us are, um, I think there is a there is a, a wonderful common grace moment that you shared about earlier where we're all realizing that um, now is the time to help our neighbor. But let's be honest, we're also all in a personal survival mode where we're just trying to push through ourselves, just waiting for the day when we can get back to normal again. And I think it would be um, a, real, a real threat or danger were we to emerge from this, those of us who are in privileged and more socioeconomic stable positions and not recognize the way that this has impacted our neighbors in a really serious permanent way long-term. So thanks for helping open our eyes to that. Um, you know, I think as we wind this up, I, th I know that people will want me to ask you this, uh, <laughs> um, but can you tell us anything about what we can expect for the months ahead? I mean, I know that we've been all hearing about the potential for a phase two or there be a lifting of some restrictions or how do you think Virginia's doing? How's Richmond doing? What do you think we can expect um, for the next couple months? Yeah. Well, I'll start with where we are now. And so it's, you know, three weeks into April and um, by and large, people like Richmond's doing really well. Folks are staying at home. They're, uh, they're must be following the, the, the physical distancing guidelines very well because we have had, relative to other cities, a pretty minimal impact in terms of cases and, and deaths. Um, and, and as importantly, we have not been over, our healthcare systems have not been overwhelmed. Um, right now, there remain about you know, 5,000 hospital beds around the state that are, are unoccupied. Um, the ventilator usage, so one of the metrics we look at is how many of the ventilators and intensive care units are actually being used. Um, right now in the state, it's about 25%. Here in Central Virginia, it's a little bit higher, about 30%. But, but all that to say that there's a lot of capacity in hospitals and health systems right now. And that is... A, uh, a direct result of the fact that by and large people have been doing what they need to do to stay home, to not be infected and to not end up in the hospital. Now, what that will lead to is that we have, we've got to figure out what our, um, our, our, our re-entry into society is going to look like. And, and very likely that will be not something that just overnight 
everything goes back to normal. It'll be a, a sort of thoughtful phased approach where, um, you know, perhaps we open up restaurants and monitor that for a while and see how much disease is being spread as a result of that kind of interaction. Um, and so I, I do think that we will have this stepwise phased approach to reopening that, that could likely start as soon as, uh, as soon as June. Um, I, I do also know that no matter what phase we open up first, we're going to see a bump in disease, right? The yeah. way that this virus works is it's looking for new hosts to spread to. And, it and is there's, and there, in, you know, no vaccine in, in sight right. at this point. And there's just no real comprehensive um, return to normalcy until that point. Yeah, I mean, we're still a good year at least away from a vaccine. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the fastest a, a vaccine has ever been created for a new virus uh, has it was four years. And, and oh, wow. <laughs> so, so I, I mean, mm -hmm. I think we like, there's never been a time like COVID-19 and the degree of focus and research and money that is being, uh, you know, singularly focused on the development of this vaccine is a, is a very different scenario than we've ever experienced. And so I'm hopeful that, that that's going to look more like one year and not four, but one year is still a long time from now. And, and so in light of the fact that there won't be a vaccine for a year, um, that we still have no clear pathway for effective treatment. There are a number of clinical trials going on around the country, uh, but nothing that, that really looks to be uh, effective at this point. Um, that, that means that we're going to have these ebbs and flows of disease. And there are things that we don't know about this disease. Like, is there, is there some seasonal variation? Will we get a reprieve as we head into the summer? But then will it come back in the winter season before we've actually had a, a vaccine or effective treatments? And I think those are all possibilities that we uh, we have to be prepared for. So I think in, in, as I think about the next six months, we will likely see um, these rolling peaks of disease as we, as we enter new phases. Um, and hopefully what will, what will need to happen for us to move into those phases will be that we have better access to testing, uh, to rapid testing, because one of our core approaches to controlling outbreaks is going to be quickly identifying who has the disease, uh, doing our contact tracing, actually like talking to those people, figuring out who they've been exposed to, and then isolating and quarantining individuals who have been exposed. Our ability as a public health system to be able to do that focused, rapid work uh, is going to be really key to containing outbreaks. Uh, because without that, with just people moving around free with, with free reign in communities, with a disease that spreads before you even know you have it, um, we're, we're just going to see huge spikes if it's not mitigated by those efforts. Mm. Wow. Well, we know certainly know what to pray for you about <laughs> in the weeks and, and months ahead. And, uh, and seriously, we are so grateful. I mean, you know that um, from our years walking together that one of my favorite scriptures from Proverbs where it says, um, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And I love that verse because it suggests that the righteous or the city king are the people that use their power um, not for themselves, but uh, for the good of the most vulnerable. And that's what we see you doing right now. Um, God has put you in this position and you're using all of your power and authority, not for yourself, but for um, the shalom and the common good of our city and especially for the most vulnerable. And um, so we are praying for you and rooting for you and are grateful for you and your work. Um, so 
thanks so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to to talk with us today. We're really yeah. grateful, Danny. Thank you, my friend. I, maybe just I'll, I'll end with this final note, which is something that um, I know you have, have talked to the family about, but I do think that this is a time like no other for the church to, to share its extraordinary generosity and grace with society at large, right? I mean, I think we are caring for each other well in the midst of this. I, we, we will get through this. But this time of just extreme crisis and, um, and difficulty for so many is, is a time for the church to emerge and to love like only Christ can love. Amen. Well, I'll let that be the final word. Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Corey. Take care. Do little things with great love.